Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. I'm very excited to have joining us on the other side of the mic. Well, let me just make sure, Pranav, that last name, Conaday. Per- I am I'm getting so good at pronouncing names. It's It needs to be seen to be believed. Uh, he's joining us uh, on the other side of the mic, a portfolio manager at Van Eck. Uh, we've been going, we've gone back and forth. Unfortunately, we got to get our messages off one month auto delete because there was a lot of good back and forth about a month ago about the market. Obviously, this is kind of what you do all day um, at the intersection of, of macro, crypto, equities. You're looking at everything. You have a good sense of what's going on. Obviously, uh, it's almost trite to say, because we've been able to say this sentence ever since the pandemic kicked off three years ago, this is just an unusual time in the market. I don't know if you had the opportunity to, to listen to um, Odd Lots a few days ago, um, where they had a Fed official come on to talk about um, how this time is different, which was a phrase he didn't necessarily <laughs> like, given um, how, I mean, it, it is in many ways, right? Given given coming out of the pandemic, um, different types of supply side shocks. And now we have this, we have Ukraine, and then we now have the Israel situation kind of uh, having its own impact with with the latter seemingly having less of an impact on markets. But let's sort of just start with um, where your head's at right now. We haven't had a macro um, markets conversation in quite some time, given all the interests around FTX and, and Caroline Ellison and Sam Bankman-Fried. But obviously, the Fed has indicated and, and the markets hated this indication that they're going to hold rates steady. Um, with a hike likely to come later in the year. So the question um, that everyone is asking and wondering, is this soft landing? Are we going to experience a soft landing? Or as we've seen with with certain analysts, um, think JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon, is the R word recession on the horizon? What do you think that will mean for crypto assets? Yeah, I should, I should probably be, like start by saying I'm not a macro guy. Um, I spent 12 years or so approximately in TradFi. Uh, I was a PM at Millennium prior to doing this. Uh, so, so we spend a lot of time thinking about macro and learning. But one of the things I'm really aware of and, and avoid doing is really expressing macro views in crypto. I feel like a lot of people do that. They're like, Fed's going to do this and this yeah. is what it means for crypto. And I think... It's really tough to do uh, because crypto, as you know, is, is just a global asset class. And I think global liquidity matters more than, you know, liquidity conditions, just whether in the U.S. or Europe. You know, what China and Japan are doing matters just as much as uh, what the U.S. central bank and the ECB is doing. But but that, that said, I mean, I think everyone I talk to, the most consensus view seems to be um, onshoring, deglobalization, higher for longer, um, and, you know, maybe recessions pushed out. And I think the Fed's maybe only going to do one cut next year. Like everyone I talk to kind of believes that view. And, and mm-hmm. often when, when everyone kind of believes one thing, the opposite tends to happen. That's at least what I've noticed in, in, in markets. And, um, you know, I think this time's no different. Um, you know, I personally believe that, you know, we are in a deflationary world and deflationary forces are greater than inflationary forces. 
and, and what I mean by that is is essentially a combination of automation and now AI. It just means there's less human, fewer human beings needed, and um, and and as a result, um, you know, that's going to ultimately trickle through to unemployment and slower wage growth, and all that really mm. means is. You know, I don't know if it's a hard landing, soft landing, and so on, but I don't think inflation is going to stay at three, four, five percent for a very long period of time. So I take the other side of that. I think we're going to get to like a two percent or sub two percent inflationary world uh, sooner than we think. And the question is like, you know, where does unemployment end up next year? Is it six percent with negative GDP growth, or is it you know four or five percent with like low single digit GDP growth? Because I think those are two very different outcomes. Um. And all that really ultimately means is like sort of the impact on interest rates. So, you know, whether mm-hmm. treasuries and 30-year treasuries drift back lower in yield, that's kind of been the thing that's, you know, I think hurting the markets the last few weeks and months is the move in longer duration treasuries because mm-hmm. um, that's kind of your cost of funding really, right? Your cost of capital. Uh, you know, it's an exercise I was personally doing and I'm going on a, a kind of a rant, but um, an exercise I was doing is I was just looking at some of the large cap tech companies and asking how much could these companies earn mm-hmm. in 10 years from now and put a reasonable multiple on it. And then you sort of look at 10-year treasuries and say, this thing is at 5% and I can compound that hopefully over 10 years. What does that return profile of those two things look like? And short answer being treasuries are very compelling. And when that's the case, nothing else is that interesting. Um, exactly. And and now you see, I mean, if we're going to think about the interconnection, you're seeing a whole slew of new firms come to market that um, are, are crypto in some respect, but they want to offer access to those juicy treasury yields. Um, so, you know, you even see um, crypto people kind of chomping at the bit there and yeah. their their mouths are, are watered yeah. for those yields. Um, what do you... <laughs> when you uh, Did you see that there was a funny chart uh, that, I don't know if it was funny, but interesting at least, Tracy Alloway tweeted that was um, 50% of the, I think the U.S. stock market companies um, publicly traded, 50% are unprofitable, mm. which I thought that seems high. Thought was pretty, yeah. yeah, let's actually pull it up. Let's make sure I'm not spreading yeah. fake news. Let's go to Tracy's Twitter. Um, the cool thing, Davis could probably get the chart up. Yeah. Because if I remember correctly, if you want to, if you need to get included in something like the S&P 500, you need to have like four consecutive quarters of gap profitability, if I remember right. So maybe they were referring to all U.S. companies rather than things in the indices. Almost half almost half of publicly listed U.S. companies are unprofitable. Higher mm. funding rate, higher funding costs, these higher interest rate could force some of these companies cut labor costs or even close. Huh. And that That's kind high. of the cutting labor costs kind of speaks to what you're what you were referring to earlier. But where do you see um, the labor market going? I mean, I, th- I think that it's going to I think it's sort of becoming um, I mean, people are kind of returning more to work. It's becoming a bit more competitive in many ways. Um, yeah. What's your take? Well, I mean, it seems there's two separate things, right? I think given where interest rates are, you see this clear kind of slowdown in housing. You also see a slowdown in like auto demand. So like big parts of the economy that are ultimately the end products are a function of interest rates are really slowing down. And those, those industries employ a lot of people. 
So to me, the question is what happens when like you start seeing layoffs in those sectors, right? Combination of autos and housing and construction. And then you kind of have the trickle down from there. Uh, that's on kind of on the sort of the labor side there, but also on the high-end job side. I mean, you tell me, I, I, do you use any of those AI tools that are out there? Some combination of ChatGPT, Claude, Bard, all these things. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. ChatGPT is my best friend. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've kind of embraced it on our team here. And and I, I've always worked with a team of analysts to kind of help me do what I do. And my work process in the past has been, I have an idea, I, I have one of my analysts go deep on it, and then we talk about it. And then I have more questions, they go research those questions and so on. And ultimately, at the end of all of that, there was maybe an investable opportunity, there's not, right? And this kind of cycle mm -hmm. maybe takes like four weeks. And, and with some of these tools, I've been able to, you know, kind of accelerate that process as in like, I don't need to assign it to anyone at the moment I have sort of the thought or idea. It's more that I can go do 70% of the work myself and then really assign it to a point where I can kind of have them do like the last leg of the work. And just, I'm, I'm not saying that's like the entire economy, but I'm just saying what's made me realize that these tools are giving me massive amounts of leverage in what I do. And ultimately just means I need fewer people to help me do what I do. And I wonder if that's going to like be a theme that you're going to see across a variety of, in, variety of industries. Yeah, it's probably going to happen quicker than we think. Yeah. And that could happen quicker. Than, so the combination of two things, right? On Like on the construction and auto side, and then on the other side, you know, the thing that well, at least the impact AI can have on high-end jobs just tells me like, you know, the, the strength we're seeing in the labor market is not as, um, is it, not all that it seems. Or it may not last as long as yeah. people may think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a good point. Um, so what, are, what other interesting data points are you, are you looking at or do you think maybe are underappreciated right now? Um, in, in terms of macro or in terms of, you know, just things? markets generally, um, you know, the, the concentration of, of capital in sort of eight stocks in, in the S and P mm. versus like the rest of the world. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of tells you of just behavior, right? Which is most people with any amount of assets are saying, I'm going to buy my bonds. I'm going to buy my T bills and, and treasuries. And then I'm going to mm -hmm. maybe go like have a little bit of like, equity upside with these small number of companies and everything else is falling by the wayside. And you can even kind of like see that in crypto, right? Like if you just look year to date, Bitcoin and ETH have really performed well. And then, you know, alts in general have been flattened down on the year. So people are just gravitating yeah. towards these big assets that they kind of recognize and saying, I'll get my risk exposure with these small set, this small subgroup of assets. And then I'll be in kind of treasuries for the most part and wait this out. Like that seems like, consensus positioning, right? And whenever you see that, I think there's an underlying opportunity in the things that people are not focused on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What type of names might those be? Um, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to like speculate on. Sort of I wonder if they're names. in my, I wonder if they're in my, my, I wonder if I have any of them. I need yeah. you to pump my proverbial it bags as it were. <laughs> well, like one of the things, you know, as, as someone who, focuses on crypto most of my time, um, I notice here is like, look, I think there's only 16, 17 million users of applications on blockchains. That's kind of like the user base, right? It's so early. Like, you know, Twitter's mm -hmm. got 400 million users plus. Um, and so the thing we wonder as a team is 
we're all in this because we think that 16 million user base is going to go to 100, 150 million users in the next couple of years. And the question we ask is, what are the things that will drive that? And we can kind of have like three or four guesses on what those could be. Um, and then if those things happen, what are the projects that will gain an adoption that will essentially be like winner take all assets and then have good economics as a byproduct of that? So that's kind of like the characteristics of a lot of things we're focused on, um, you know, thematically. And, and so that's, yeah, that's, that's how I sort of see the opportunity set. It's interesting the way you describe it. It's almost like a tale of two markets and you only, you, you only need to look as far as my NFT portfolio and a Bitcoin ETH chart to, to get a sense of that. Right. I mean, yeah. you look at the long tail of, of alts and NFTs. I mean, I was looking at one that I had and I, I must have, I mean, a drawdown of like 99.999% versus to your point, Bitcoin up, I don't know, 70% on the year. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. I guess part of it is just like a flight to what is safe. Do you think there's any, is it, is it mostly that? Like, is it simply this weird, uh, experimental stuff, capital flowing out of it into the safer bets or are there other, uh, other sort of undercurrents that are playing into, um, a more bullish, uh, narrative for, Bitcoin, or is it simply um, crypto people like us just moving their money into either Bitcoin or, or stables or, or in some instances, I mean, yeah. uh, treasuries? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think there's probably three or four forces that has driven that, that performance, if you want to call it a relative performance between alts and Bitcoin this year so far. So number one, was you kind of had SVB and subsequently like sort of the Bitcoin ETF filings that came out. So that gave some people comfort to allocate capital to Bitcoin. One was the narrative of bank failures and the other one was like, hey, there could be this spot ETF in the future. That kind of happened earlier in the year. At the same time, you had the SEC's lawsuits against Binance and Coinbase, which took more liquidity out of alts, right? Because you kind of like a lot of things were labeled unregistered mm. securities. And once you kind of labeled them under securities, market makers kind of disappeared from them. Liquidity kind of died down. Like I, I can yeah, tell you on a point. day-to-day basis, liquidity for alts is like one, approximately one-tenth of what it used to be about a year ago. So when you remove liquidity from assets, prices go down. That's kind of like the reality of it. Mm. Third factor mm. is you can follow any of these crypto bankruptcies. And one of the things you'll notice is most of them have, uh, as a part of their plan, converting their alts into Bitcoin and ETH because those are the only two that they could potentially distribute back to creditors at some point. So you kind of have a, like a lot of these the sell pressure um, on alts that's also putting buy, putting buy pressure on Bitcoin and ETH while liquidity is disappearing from those alts. So you've kind of had like a confluence of these factors playing into this kind of market structure and dynamic. Um, and I think I can anecdotally, I've had a bunch of conversations with other managers in the in the crypto space that will kind of say, "I think everything else is dead. Bitcoin is the only thing that will work, or some some form of that, right? Or I don't I think everything is dead, and Bitcoin ETH are the only things that might work in the future." And I think that's like kind of classic bear market behavior, right? I remember this in in 2019 as well. You saw this, saw the same thing. Um, so so you know, so take that for what that's worth. Um, but from an adoption perspective, you know, I was just in Singapore and Hong Kong. I don't know if you were there as well for Token 2049. Mm. You know, 
met a whole bunch of folks um, on the family office, multifamily office and private banking side. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a narrative in my head was post uh, the sanctions the U.S. weighed against like, you know, Russian oligarchs last year, interest in, you know, Bitcoin Mm might have gone up among wealthy people coming out of mainland China or just parts of Asia. And that, that ended up, at least in my experience, not being true. Like those people are not saying, I'm going to go get myself some Bitcoin exposure. They're all just saying, I want some dollars and I want real estate and, you know, Mm. maybe some treasuries. So I haven't seen that from people outside. So I think everything you're seeing in the crypto markets today is more a byproduct of just behavior in crypto markets, less to do with outside forces. There's, um, there's a lot of, yeah, there's definitely a lot of interest in Asia um, among family offices, hedge funds are pouring money into these research shops and houses to kind of help them navigate um, this sort of Terra Nova. Yeah. What, what do you make of the sort of lack of interest in, in ETH futures? Um, and that's kind of been, we've seen some memory on that. Um, speaking of JPEGs, low, low volume, just like your JPEGs. <laughs> I think that was a direct attack on, on me uh, from the, from, from the Vanek uh, social media team. Um, do you have, (laughs) I don't know if you can talk about specific products or not. Um, but I can't comment on the ETF stuff very specifically a, cause I'm not in that part of the business. Um, but, but B, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's just, yeah, I, I should generally stay away from that, but I think, you know, look, I think the better products from an ETF perspective are spot ETFs. So like mm-hmm. that's those ETF like you know I have a can I give device. my can I give my my theory do you th- and and maybe yeah. you can yeah, say yeah. if it's wrong or not yeah I wonder if it's if it's a derivative of um like do you think because they think a spot ETF might be down might be coming um and and spot which was the point you were about to make is superior to futures for X Y Z reason which we can maybe get into. Um, they're just waiting. They're like, I'd rather get the exposure be a spot. So let me wait for that ETF to go out versus um, pouring yeah. into the futures base one. That, you know, that could totally be it. Um, you know, I think if, if I take a step back, um, the spot ETFs in general, like could open up the market for like the financial advisor community. Right. Um, Mm-hmm. Do, do, I'm just curious. Do you have a financial advisor yourself? You probably do, right? I do. I yeah. do, yeah. Um, you should ask them this, which is like, hey, if there's a spot ETF one day, will you sort of recommend I have this as a part of my portfolio? Like that's the question I asked my mm. financial advisor. And and the response was, I don't know what about all that. What did they say? Well, they were like, well, we're not so <laughs> sure about that. <laughs> it was more like if you come to us and say, no, I want to load. Yeah, they, what's that? Yeah. No, like, yeah, it, yeah. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, it's like if you come to us and say, we want some crypto exposure, then if there's a spot ETF, we can suggest you take a look at that. But we're, like, it'll be a while probably before we as the financial advisors start recommending this to people. Um, so, so like, yeah. So if you kind of use that logic, right? I mean, like in this current market, I don't know who the audience ultimately is that's sort of looking and saying, like, like if you want to buy ETH, you can just, you know, people can find a way to buy ETH, right? Is this the right product for yeah. the market today? I just buy it through Fidelity now. Yeah. This isn't a Fidelity plug, but they've made it pretty easy. Yeah. Um, 
It's true. To do the Bitcoin and Fidelity. How so are the bid offers point, on like, that? What's even the, the spread's pretty high. Um, yeah. So you do, I mean, it's like, I think it's like 50, 50 bips or something, but yeah, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, it's going to, it's going to five to 10 X. So at the end of the day, like that's just going to be, that's just, you know, that's what you're saying. Business. Yes. I'm not saying that. <laughs> yes. That's what I'm, that's what I'm, that's what I'm, I mean, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe yeah. not. Um, not financial advice. Um, so what does it, but when you think about the market right now in crypto, um, okay. So we hit that, that dichotomy, which was interesting, but, uh, there's even some, I, I read about this a few weeks ago. There's some lingering ZERP, uh, things happening still with, with a lot of this, uh, what are they calling it? SoFi social finance hmm. where, you see these, you see people jumping from these different clones of friend tech one okay. to the next yeah, and trading shares in crypto Twitter people's accounts. I mean, yeah. that's, that feels very, that's like very zero interest rate, <laughs> uh, sort of vibe, um, that, that kind of is still lingering within crypto. There's still this desire to experiment and throw money at things that are random despite, these other market forces that are at play. Yeah. Not to the same scale, but I find it interesting that I, I wonder where like this capital is, is coming from. Um, I mean, it's to me, it's generally seems like it's existing crypto capital that, mm -hmm. you know, is airdrop farming some L2 airdrop. And then at the same time was maybe blur farming. And now it's doing this thing with friend, friend.tech. Right. I think it's like mm -hmm. the same audience just going hot. It's just a hot ball of money just going around. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought it was an interesting experiment. Um, mm -hmm. you know, like for example, like I was like studied only business model and I thought, you know, Mm -hmm. OnlyFans is going to have a tough time going public, I think. But it seems like from what I've yeah. read in the press, they generate a lot of cash. And, um, you know, I wondered if like some of those creators from OnlyFans can ultimately make their way to friend.tech, friend which I think some of them did, right? And you can yeah. create some interesting things around that. But but just the random speculation on people's like value when they don't provide any value back to you is unsustainable over the long run. Um, and also there's a price for all those things, right? I think the most interesting experiment was like, you know, what the board apes were worth, um, at the peak of the bull market. And then when they started to sort of ship like these videos of the existing game or started to quote unquote, create utility for these things, people then had, could kind of do the math and they say, wait, is this thing really worth, is, is this experience, this project going to give me actually worth this price of the monkey picture that I have? And so... Mm. I think that's a math like a lot of people will do at some point, but also like, yeah, like I think one of my, I don't know if I were to criticize the space for something, it's that a lot of people are too focused on building things for the existing user base rather than, you know, building things for the people that are not current users. Or at least we haven't seen yeah. that. I'd love to see more of that. To what degree, um, to what degree is the regulatory picture here in the states, in your, in your, from your vantage point, your seat, um, you know, creating a, creating pressure? In my opinion, a lot. Um, I, and I didn't realize mm -hmm. this until I did the trip 
to Singapore and Hong Kong and met projects as well as potential investors in the in the region. Because one of the things mm-hmm. I realized was that, you know, Web2 banks, you know, are generally open to experimenting on chain and building products on chain. And that gets reported in the press. And as a result, mm-hmm. investors in those parts of the world are naturally curious, right? Uh, they want to hear why people are doing something. Like, you know, I think when Grab announced their um, Web3 wallet embedded in the Grab app, uh, a lot of people, a lot of Singaporeans were curious, like, oh, like, what's the benefit of this? Like, it seems like, you know, um, I could, yeah, it's, people were just curious. It created this curiosity and people wanted to understand and hear yeah. it. In the States, it's kind of like this constant, like negative news flow from a regulatory perspective, which then scares founders. And then as a result, most investors are also like, this seems like they just kind of write off the whole space as a result. So there's this kind of dark cloud hanging around the entire sort of, uh, country almost from that perspective. Certainly feels that way. How does a firm like Vanek navigate that dark cloud? Um, we, th- so, so we, so myself as well as Jan, um, Jan Vanek, CEO of the firm, um, firms hundred percent family owned. So it makes things a lot easier. Um, it's not a public company or anything, right? It's just a family owned business. And so, um, the way we think about this is we understand the benefits of public blockchains and and what it could do for not just the existing financial system, but anything that has some intermediary in the middle. Um, we like we think the idea of building applications on public blockchains are super interesting. And to the extent that thesis were to come true, then it would become very obvious for regulators and why they should be open-minded to, to this technology. So I think regulations will follow the use cases rather than regulations being sort of something that comes ahead of the use case. This, the whole RWA phrase seems to be cropping up more and more. It mm-hmm. seems the tokenization of existing assets, real world assets. Does yeah. that resonate with you? Or are you seeing that as well? Um, I'm, we're seeing the growth of it. We all look at the dashboard, right? Things like RWA.xyz. Mm-hmm. We look at the growth of that chart. Um, what's hard to decipher from that is, is are people using the underlying RWA products, whether it's tokenized treasuries or whatnot, because they are farming some airdrop in the future, or are they actually getting true utility out of like having some tokenized treasury in their portfolio? Um, you know, I think... But it, I think nonetheless, it's, it's pretty interesting, right? To the extent um, you can bring like the private credit markets on chain, um, mm-hmm. like that's very interesting. There's some projects that are doing that, right? Which is like underwriting loans in Latin America or, you know, Central America, bundling them up and then offering that to accredited investors on chain. Like that's like, there's a lot of intermediation you get rid of when you do it that way. So that's pretty interesting. Um mm-hmm. And I think anything that ultimately brings users to use some form of self-custody that then opens up their experience to a whole bunch of dApps is, to me, a great outcome. Because to me, you just need one domino to get someone on chain, right? Like, I, I remember, like, a lot of my friends in TradFi didn't really kind of understand what the space was all about. And then they were mm-hmm. onboarded to the space through, like, NBA Top Shots because they like basketball. And now, all of a sudden, you kind of have a wallet and you have these NFTs in your wallet. And you kind of sit around and say, what else can I do? And I think that's that's a great point to be, and that's what these, some of these RWAs could do. 
But is that like the coolest, like most interesting kind of use case? Maybe, maybe not. To me, like the coolest outcome would be if you can tokenize stocks and you give like regular companies the ability to sort of leverage this programmable money thing where like their stock, which just represents like some ownership can be used in kind of novel ways. It's getting like progressively more easy to engage with these different chains. I remember before like um, Avalanche started trading on Coinbase and everybody wanted to get in there before um, it, it, you know, became more publicly available as it were, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty intricate process to bridge over. Um, and now, you know, I was testing out the stars arena, uh, friend tech clone basically. Yep. And just the process of sort of engaging between the, the two chains of, of, um, getting, you know, working between Ethereum and Avalanche and, um, using these different, um, blockchains is just, it's gotten like an order of magnitude, um, more straightforward. Yeah. I think, I think there's been a realization among like just founders and builders that not everything you're building needs to be decentralized, right? You can ask like what property of being on a public ledger do you value the most? And then you kind of progressively decentralize your project if you need to, um, over time, mm -hmm. But just make it super user-friendly because I think, and honestly, this could be a good thing that comes out of the bear market and, and high interest rates and all these things. Like the lack of capital that's coming into the space yeah. probably means that founders and teams have to make very deliberate decisions on figuring out how to get users that can pay fees to use your product. And as a result, you can exist as a business in the future. Otherwise, you're going to run out of capital and you're not going to exist. So when you have that kind of constraint on you, I think you make some good decisions. And that's kind of what we're seeing across like a variety of things. Yeah. And it's, I feel like that's translated into, it's a good point. I've said, I've said this many, uh, many, many times um, over the last six years, um, you know, starting in the ICO boom, when you have a, when there's no constraint on capital that breeds a lack of discipline. Um, yeah. And many, many, many instances, it kind of attracts people who aren't disciplined, founders and entrepreneurs who are are not in the business of building something, but in the business of um, extracting capital. Yeah. Um, the old mercenaries versus. Um, <laughs> I'm curious, you know, since you've, you've been around for a while in the space, what's your perception of this bear market compared to the last one? Any differences? Similarities? Well, well, I was just going to say each, each kind of breeds, it brings to life a new category of entrepreneur. Um, and so when I think about the more recent announcements compared to, let's say the DeFi boom, and then we could say the 2017 boom, 2017 was a lot of like financial services companies that weren't crypto, but offered like exposure. Mo most of them are dead now. Yeah. I'm talking about like the BlockFi's and the FTX's of the world. Yeah. And then the DeFi boom saw a lot of like, um, and our friend Nick, um, Van yeah. has talked about this. Uh, we talked about it at dinner the other, other night. Um, or, or, and also we, uh, chatted about a recent investment, um, in, in this, um, this new company. It's not so much like these iterations on very specific problems within a chain. So, you know, each chain's going to have, um, X project fixing Y. And then there's like 10 of them across the different layer ones. Yeah. You're having actual products come to market now that mm -hmm. are not just, um, 
iterative as right. it were. Yeah. Um, and so that's like this new wave of like actual, um, products on built, uh, that are not just like kind of fixing a very important, but also very technical problem. Um, and then that, that those are like the three different waves that I've seen. Um, so it was like a financial services wave, then like a very DeFi tech specific wave. Um, a lot of weird options and, and, uh, derivative yep. protocols in 2020 as well. Yeah. Um, and now I think we have this new wave of entrepreneurs and then in between in, in that there was also obviously like a separate segment of like web three that's kind of connected, but a bit, um, in parallel. Yeah. But NFT market's just really brutal right now. Yeah. I mean, I just keep thinking like in 2021 or even 2020, if you told me that, Visa was going to be using USDC for merchant settlements, yeah, yeah. cross-border merchant settlements. And you told me PayPal was going to do a stablecoin. I, I would have been ecstatic. And you're kind of having these things happen now. And, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see if those things get adopted, right? We've done a lot of work on the payment side. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and so. How, how, how does that, um, have you, have you sort of looked into the degree to which that like adds value to the network? And do we have a sense of, how much activity there there actually is on because you're yeah. right, Mastercard, PayPal, all these firms have made these announcements. Um, yeah, but so, it, to what degree is that actually uh, material? So our first take at it because we looked at, we looked at the Visa USDC thing on Solana and we kind of said, if I'm a merchant today and on a hundred dollar transaction, I probably realized ninety seven ninety seven and a half dollars, right? Like two and a half to three dollars gets paid to. Uh, the the person's bank is swiping. So if you're using your Chase card to swipe your credit card, almost you know one point goes there, uh, but 0.5 goes to Visa, Mastercard, and uh, maybe even the merchant acquirer, and then the rest goes to like sort of the bank on the merchant side. Uh, and there's like a three day settlement period. So the argument to why you know a merchant should accept USDC as as settlement rather than USD on ACH or wires is that you get to remove maybe like 50 basis points to one point of that two and a half points of fees. Uh, and you get potentially instant settlement. So there is like real kind of value proposition there um, to the merchants, especially because if you kind of scale that up, faster settlement means like less working capital needs, but also some cost savings. Although the bigger cost savings will come if you can get rid of like the the issuer, like the credit card issuer bank, because that's like the interchange fee that just sits mm -hmm. on that end. But you can figure out how to get the, the interchange fee. Before, you know, that's the that. real, yeah. The interchange fee. That's the real, uh, yeah, bastard. <laughs> like I think that's like the second part of it. Um, but but the, that just the initial part of like Visa to merchant. If you can get enough merchants to onboard to using that product, then the merchant can figure out how to get their consumer to also like pay them with USDC. Um, that you know every merchant is different, right? Like if I'm like a vacation rental company. I can create different incentives for Frank to do their vacation rental and pay in USDC versus if I'm a grocery chain, I can do something different. So like the merchant can figure that out. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an interesting approach that Visa is taking there. Um, have you seen anything on chain? No, like, cause it's kind of early with that. Um, can it be a lot of activity on chain? Um, potentially, but I don't, I don't think it will be like a needle mover in the sense, like, like all of a sudden, like, mm -hmm. you know, gas fees are like you see it in gas fees every single you know block right i don't think you'll be that 
uh, at least not not by our math. But it's okay because it's the first domino, right? If you can get merchants mm. to get a wallet, a self custody wallet of some sort, and start accepting stables, then they have a direct incentive to then creating their consumers to do the same and they have their direct incentive to get their vendors to do the same. It's like the domino, right? And you get these things going. You need yeah. to take out these things. So I think it opens, it's just, yeah. let's get users on chain. That's what, that's where we are. So let's get that 16 million and users. And soon started. it'll just be, it, I mean, a lot of this stuff is, is you know, as, as soon as it becomes unsexy, then that's when you've hit that inflection point where it's not even something you really even notice or pay attention to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, what else uh, to close are you excited about? What uh, w- What's sort of at the forefront of things happening there over at VanEck? Um, so the investing stuff is still pretty interesting to us. You know, the way we kind of generally look at the space is 70% of our book is in what we call core positions that are uh, – mm-hmm. that meet at the kind of the intersection of three things, which is TradFi will understand and like this eventually – Crypto likes this. Crypto retail likes this. Um, that's a lot of what our book is. And then 20% is kind of in fringe, which is, we don't think TradFi will get it right away, but eventually they'll get it. And that last bucket, mm-hmm. about 10% of our portfolio is sort of in moonshots. We love spending time on the mm-hmm. moonshots, which is because that's where like the craziest, most interesting things are happening. Um, so like Deepin kind of falls under that category for us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we wrote about this recently, but we made an investment in HiveMapper. Um, that's an interesting project, you know, mm-hmm. Because if one of these things can actually work, there's visible cost savings against the legacy financial system. Uh, and then you kind of have this like lock-in effect, right? Uh, you can't just fork something in the physical world as you can in like just pure open source software. So um, yeah, we, we like that. We find those types of projects super interesting. But again, like they come with a lot of risk, which is with all these kind of deep end projects, it's pretty easy to scale the supply side of the network, but then creating demand and doing BD to create demand is like the really, really hard part. And we haven't seen mm-hmm. anyone successfully do that yet. But if they can, then it's really interesting. Stable coins are hot, very hot. Yeah. Um, probably because of those nice, nice yields. Everybody's seeing how much Tether and Circle <laughs> are making. And yeah. Likely, I mean, the block should really start a stable coin. That that would be that would be interesting. Everyone, I mean, um, isn't there going to be like? I, I imagine there's going to be like stable coins a service type thing, but everyone can have their own stable coin one day. You know, it's, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, th- sir, thank you so much for coming on the program. This was yeah. fantastic. We'll be back. We'll have to have you back on soon as well. Thanks yeah. for tuning in. Sounds good. Thank you.